Welcome back, listeners. On this week's episode, we have Wendy Hallam Martin, editor of The Handmaid's Tale, which just wrapped its fourth season. We discuss a wide range of topics, including her Emmy award-winning episode of the second season, jumping into The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, which was a new streaming platform at the time, how integral sound is in the show and editing in general, plus much more. So my interest in editing really started when I was younger, like a kid, uh, but I didn't know that it was editing that I was interested in. Um, I used to love, mostly my favorite things were reading and and writing stories and um, music. Mm -hmm. And my dad and I would sit on the couch and watch old movies together. And um, where I really kind of noticed the editing was on Raging Bull. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. Like I could tell that the editing was was creating the tension. And but I did it subjectively, like I, I didn't really understand what it was. And then going to high school, I thought, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I thought I might you know, be, get into social work, helping children, because I love kids. And, um, you know, music was always like the cool job that I thought I wanted to do. And I, and I had a friend who worked at a record store and he managed it. And he said, I've been invited down for a music video shoot. This was back in the eighties when music videos were like everything. And um, so basically he invited me down and I sat in the audience. It was being filmed at this auditorium. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. And it wasn't about the band. It was like how they were filming it. And, and it was Bruce Coburn, who's a Canadian sort of icon. And they asked me to be in the video. So I got to be in the video. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was mostly watching the director and watching the camera work. And, and then when I saw it all put together, it was like, oh, cool. That's what I want to do. I want to marry my love of storytelling and music together. And then sort of came to the conclusion that editing was it when I went into film school because I was kind of okay at it. And everybody always asked me to, you know, to edit their films. And I shot a music video for my boyfriend's band at the time. So it was, it was just, it just kind of was a natural progression. Well, hopefully you got some money from your, your boyfriend's band's video. No. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, So then how did you really get into, um, into the scene? How, how did you progress in, into your career? Yeah, that's a good question. I went to film school um, and then on any spare time I had, I would volunteer at, um, on music video shoots or for friend shoots or whatever. And so I kind of got my feet wet a little bit there and I kind of decided that being on set was not something I was really that interested in. I wanted to be more creative immediately. So like being a PA pulling cables or getting someone's lunch or, you know, uh, driving their dry cleaning to the dry cleaners was not something that I thought was particularly creative. So I decided that because I was pretty good at editing and you're, you're creative that way, Um, in my final year at film school, they put you in a placement. So I asked for post-production and I wound up at a place called Sunrise Films, which Deepa Mehta and her husband owned. And Deepa is a um, Canadian filmmaker um, who has quite, quite well known. And so I got to work in their company and work on their shows and um, 
I was an assistant, like I started as a, a second assistant sinking dailies um, back in the film days. And uh, then the editor there, Stephen Lawrence, who was my mentor and he taught me everything I know. He brought me up through the ranks and I became his first assistant. And then he would throw scenes at me and then finally gave me my own little bottle episode of the show we were working on. And then um, I worked with him for quite a few years, had a couple of kids in between all of that. And then when I came back to work for him, he was working with a director who um, he'd worked with for many years, but he was too busy to work with him. And so he said, well, why doesn't Wendy do it? So they secretly got me greenlit by Showtime to do Mr. Music with uh, mm -hmm. the guy, oh gosh, uh, his name escapes me, the drummer from Fleetwood Mac, uh, Mick Fleetwood mm -hmm. was in it. Yeah. And um, it was a dream come true to cut a movie was my first gig and it being about music as well. So. Mm -hmm. um, and I heard, or I, I read, sorry, that, uh, Queer as Folk is a, um, is a very important uh, show to you. Can you explain um, why that is? I mean, it, it's a very important show to me. So I, 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 I love sort of, I love seeing that that was an important sort of milestone for you. Yeah, it was a special, special time and place that show really launched my career. Um, I had done the movie and then I was offered Queer Spoke and I absolutely loved the British version. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen in my life. So when they offered it to me, I was like, oh, do we really want to remake something that's so great? Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, I, my, two of my uncles are gay, you know, like I have a lot of people close to me that are gay and I really wanted to be in that world and live in that world and really experiment creatively because it was a show that you could do really creative things with and um, we had kind of an un unlimited music budget and the producers were really open to us just trying out different styles different editing styles they gave the uh, crew sort of carte blanche and the directors to do really cool stuff um, so it was an exciting show to be on and the cast were like, we were just one huge family. We all hung out together. We partied together. We went places together. Peter Page is still one of my best friends. I go, every time I go to LA, I see him. And when he comes here, he sees me. And we're, it, it was just such a wonderful, inclusive, creative environment. And Showtime were behind us and um, they really supported the show. And Dan and Ron, our showrunners were, so supportive and and I don't know it just was a magical moment I mean you don't get those all the time in fact I've only ever had it twice um and Queer Spoke was one of them and we still get together all of us we have reunions every year oh that's lovely yeah oh that's so great to hear yeah so they're just the best the best group of people I I can only imagine um yeah. So I'm guessing that second time has to be Handmaid's Tale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously. Um, so how were you approached for Handmaid's Tale? Um, how much did you know about Hulu at the time? Um, was there like 
any hesitation on your end no. um, or like, yeah, just sort of walk me through the beginning process of that. Sure. Well, um, Take 5 is a post-production facility in Toronto, where I'm based out of. And they have the best shows that come from, from all over the world go to Take 5. Um, they just have such a high caliber crew of, of people that they can pull from to, um, you know, shoot here, edit here, all the rest of it. John Weber's the head of the company and he sets up all the productions. Um, so not only post-production, but they do, you know, they run the shows. So I had done the tutors for Take Five and Vikings I helped out with prior to that. Uh, Queer as Folk was with Sheila Hawken and Bill Goddard who were two people who were, uh, you know, sort of head of post at the time and they, freelance for Take Five. So Sheila Hawken was in Take Five and got the call that the show might come to town and would I be interested? Well, I read The Handmaid's Tale in high school and mm -hmm. reread it over the years because it's one of my favorite books and Margaret Atwood's like a hero here. So um, yeah, so I, I told her, of course I'm interested. And then he, she said, okay, well, we'll set up a call with Bruce Miller. I was like, oh my gosh, I, he's, I don't know Bruce, but I know his shows. He seems like pretty daunting because he's a big, you know, Hollywood guy and a, quite a good writer. And, I mean, an excellent writer. I didn't really know Hulu at the time. Like, I think um, they were just a, more, a smaller sort of organization at that time until Hulu sort of took on Handmaids and Handmaids kind of really exploded them Yeah. Um, in all the right ways. So yeah, I got on the call with Bruce and we just spent a half an hour talking about shows that we loved. And he asked me, how would you cut Handmaid's Tale? And um, I sort of told him I would keep, you know, Gilead very Kubrickian and, and big wide frames. And, you know, it's all a point of view show. It's all through June's perspective. Uh, and then I said, you know, Toronto will be more phonetic and loud and colorful and, and so on. And I guess I hit the right chord. And um, he goes, okay, well, we'll see you in Toronto. And that was it. <laughs> and so I was like, I guess I got the gig. I don't know. So I phoned Sheila and she says, oh yeah, he liked you. You got the gig. Don't worry. So I, yeah. So Julian Clark started on the show. He was cutting the pilot. Mm -hmm. um and he had to leave early he he was fantastic he did an incredible job he set the tone him and Reed Morano set the tone and he had to leave before they finished filming but he had done a lot of the heavy lifting on the pilot and I just took over and continued cutting the scenes that weren't shot and then it took six months to lock the pilot because we just had to figure out what the show was and yeah. how long we can hold close-ups, which I know a lot of people complain about, um, you know, where, where, where June lives and, and how we get in her head. And, you know, we had a, a lot of back and forth with the network. The network thought it was too slow, too slow, speed it up, speed it up. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were at some point just nickel and diming frames. Okay. We took two frames off that shot. Can we move on please? You know? <laughs> So anyway, we landed in a good spot, I think, and uh, moved on from there. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously four seasons in now. Um, 
Yeah. But so I want to go to the pilot just very quickly. So that pilot actually won you an Ace Eddie. Yes. So that's very interesting to sort of, I mean, here you, here you are a project that essentially takes you six months in total to sort of finish. And then with some hesitation from the network and then not really knowing how it's going to be received by the public. I mean, I mean, that's very, I, that's fascinating to hear. And how did, how did you feel after you sort of wrapped the pilot? And I mean, did you have any idea of like where, um, where the show was going, like how big the show was going to be? No idea. I mean, we thought we had something really great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the first three episodes, just Reed Murano just knocked it out of the park. I mean, she really, she set the tone by making a lookbook. I mean, she had a music um, Spotify playlist that we would listen to. And um, luckily her taste and my taste and Chris Donaldson, who, the, who is the other editor who I work with mostly, uh, we were all aligned. We all have similar tastes um, in music and just in our sensibilities in storytelling. So we knew it was special and Reed just was like, you know, oh, I thought the pilot was great. And then I saw episode two and I think that's amazing. And then she saw episode three that we did and she's like, oh my God, that's even better. Like, it just was like, she was really pumped. So she was the, the cheerleader behind all of us. Mm -hmm. and we knew it was special we knew it but we all we're all kind of quirky kids like we you know we live in a make-believe world and and we have weird tastes so we thought maybe it's just going to be a niche audience like it's it's tough viewing mm -hmm. it's not for the faint of heart but um you know I'm gra I gravitate to dark stuff so mm -hmm. it, it was right up my alley I thought well I know a few people who really like this show yeah but Hulu were excited. They 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 really liked it. I mean, they, they weren't they weren't nickel and diming, you know, when it came to just being a network. You know, they wanted to make it as good as it could be because they knew it was special. They wanted to put in that extra time. Yeah, and it really paid off. We came to a really good place in the end. Yeah, so. and I, I mean, also just to sort of speak on like the cast at the time. I mean, you. I mean, the show very, I, at least I felt um, cultivated a sort of a, a cast of character actors and actresses that, I mean, I think everyone knew Elizabeth Moss from uh, Mad Men, um, but then, I mean, you, you get people like Ann Dowd and uh, I mean, it just, I mean, the list would go on, Yvonne, Straczynski, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, no. And I mean, it, it just keeps going. Um, but I mean, that's so wonderful. I mean, just to sort of hear that you, you did, I mean, got the support that Hulu. Um, oh yeah, MGM and Hulu have been fantastic. They've been great partners from day one. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was funny. Uh, we had a little tidbit of information. We had a music budget and it wasn't huge. It was adequate. Um, and then when we put in all this music in one, two, and three, uh, Warren Littlefield, who was our exec producer, he's, he's incredible. He's like, 
leave it in, leave it in. They're going to fall in love with it and then they'll pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did read out, you know, Simple Minds in there and like all, all these big tunes. We are, we're really only supposed to have like one song per episode, but um, yeah, and Leslie Gore, like all, all sorts of different music. And um, sure enough, they, they upped our music budget once they saw how good the show was. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and I mean, can, I didn't, Think that some people realize how important sound is to editing. So can you sort of um, just for the the regular regular listener, can you sort of explain? I mean, I think to some people they just see a picture and they're like, oh, they cut it here, they cut it here, they cut it here. But can you go into um, some aspects of the sound that, that you're having to deal with? Yeah, sound on The Handmaid's Tale is like another character. Like the, um, the sound team, um, which are Sim in Toronto, are absolutely incredible. And they love the show just as much as everybody else. So they really go to town. And our incredible composer, Adam, is another person who just adds to that whole soundscape um, and supports the picture. So. The funny thing is, is when people look at The Handmaid's Tale, they don't think that it's a difficult show for sound. So they, they think of a show that has explosions and, you know, car squeals and chase sequences. That's, you know, good sound editing. The sound in The Handmaid's Tale is so intricate and so specific. Mm. I'll give you an example. Uh, in the pilot, you know, we would do flashbacks. And how do we do a flashback without like a cheesy dissolve or like a, you know, like you didn't want to do it visually. So our assistant at the time, Anna Yavari, who is now cutting, she's cutting this season and she did two last season and she's incredible. She, she really worked hard and we trained her and helped her up through the ranks, but she's, she's really great. She was on the pilot at, uh, as an assistant and she created this incredible soundscape so for example, there's a scene in the pilot where Serena meets June for the first time and Fred comes in and Fred, you know, meets June and, and leaves and, and Serena's suspicious that they like each other too much. So she says, I don't want any trouble from you. Uh, if, there'll be, if there's trouble, you'll, you know, you'll get punished for it. So we cut to June's fist and all of a sudden you hear like, a rattle of like a pipe and it's like rising and the sound gets a bit distorted and it gets echoey and then we whoosh out to back in the day when she was with I don't I forget if we go to Moira on the beach at that point I can't remember if it's Hannah and Luke I can't remember anyway um, so the sound takes us there Mm -hmm. And it's not done visually. So the sound really is a huge, important part of it. So when I assemble my episode, I'll lay in basic sound effects and then I'll hand it off. And the assistants, I mean, it's a great way, great training ground for assistants to learn how to cut picture. So they'll take it and they'll create the soundscapes. And then mm. it's really intricate and really quite difficult oh, to get yeah. right, mm, yeah. you know? Um, there's a definite language and, and you really have to learn the language. Mm -hmm. So moving on to season two, um, I want to read a, a quote you said in an interview, if you don't mind, it's a little long, 
but um, I just, I want to get some feedback sort of now a few years past. So um, it's the 10 minute scene at the beginning. And you said, when I watch the scene today, I still get goosebumps thinking June is going to die, even though I know every frame in the cut. I was one of those, uh, it was one of those scenes that felt like my intuition took um, over when cutting it. It took two days to put together and it honestly felt like an hour. It was extremely challenging given the amount of footage, the number of people in the scene and the terror I had to bring out in these women. It was such a fine balance of how long to hold on to a shot, who to be on when to change camera angles and what sizes to choose. The narrative, the narrative really dictated the rhythm and pace. It was it truly was a learning moment for me as an editor not to force something that isn't true to the moment. And so obviously the scene resonated with you um, mm. and so many others. Um, and I guess my main question is like, why do you think that is? I mean, I, I can understand why it resonates with me, but maybe, maybe to speak more broadly to it. Um, I mean, it's the way we started the episode. And so you're, you're kind of on the edge of your seat anyway, you're, because the, the season finale prior to that is where the book ends and she gets mm -hmm. into the van and you never know in the book what happens to her. So it's new territory for a start. And you don't know if she's going to a good end or a bad end. And um, so I think it resonates with people because you're worried for her for one but it's also like it's something that's kind of not done on television like to be with one character and go through everything with her for a full 10 minutes um and then you know i found the i mean bruce had brought the cape bush song into the cutting room but he didn't know where he wanted to use it mm -hmm. and so i just laid that in and it just like it was just like one of those things. I, it's so hard to explain because it, everything just fell into place. Cutting it, the music fell into place. That you know, uh, Mike Barker, who shot it, like did such an incredible job directing it. And Lizzie knocked it out of the park as per norm with her performance. But you know, he would come in the cutting room and say, "I I really don't know what I want to change." And I'm like, "I know. I've been down that road. I've." I've tried different things and it just kind of told me how it had to go together. Mm -hmm. So I just, maybe because it felt so organic on all levels and that's maybe why it resonates with people. I don't know. It just feels real. Yeah. It feels yeah, yeah. Yeah. more real than anything I've ever done before. I, don't, I can't explain it. It's weird. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, it did get you the Emmy. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah. How was, what that was, was that experience like? Oh my God. I never in a million years thought I would even be nominated, let alone win. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, and especially going up against Game of Thrones, I thought, oh, forget it. <laughs> um, well, I mean, deserve yeah, it. So. It, was, it was really lovely. I mean, it's, there's, I'm not the kind of person who's in it for the awards. I know a lot of people like that's their be all and end all and won't be happy if they don't win something. For me, it's not about that, but it was really, really nice. And the, you know, the cherry on the cake for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
And you were also nominated um, for another episode that season, um, but came out with the weird Emmy timing rules. Yes. Um, the uh, last episode, The Word. And uh, I have um, a question after doing a little bit more research into that. Um, you said in another interview um, that you were mining for gold and that audiences understand time passage better than we give them credit for. And I find that very interesting because I, I was speaking to um, the editor of the upcoming movie Respect um, yesterday, and she said the exact same thing in terms of um, the, that they don't, that I, the creators of the director they, and the editor doesn't give the uh, credit to the audience. Um, and I wonder why that is. And I, I asked her the same question yesterday and I, I'd love to ask you uh, the same thing since I saw that. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because I sort of came up through the ranks in the old time movie making, you know, like as far as you couldn't break continuity, doing a jump cut was frowned upon, you know, passage of time was done with dissolves. Um, and all of those things, I think it's, it's good as an editor to have been trained that way, because if you know the rules, then you can break the rules. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it's television and film, it's always evolving, and especially TV lately. And I think that, you know, back in the day, you had to, you know, sort of the Aaron Spelling School of editing, you had to have an establishing shot so that people knew where they were and then you could go inside, you know? <laughs> um, so I think, I think as the years go on, we try to get away from those conventional movie making processes, you know? And so, and audiences are definitely smarter. They, they know if we're not in a grocery store anymore and we cut to, a, you know, a kitchen in someone's house, we know we're not in the grocery store anymore. But mm -hmm. um, a lot of directors and producers from, from different time still feel that you have to do that. And it's like, no, 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 you have to give the audience credit. They can figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you noticed, but on Hammy's Town, we do zero establishing shots. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you have to have the person in the shot if you're doing like a drone of the forest, for example, or, you know, like we have, we have very hard rules on the Hammy's Tale. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like we don't overlap dialogue coming into a scene, you don't pre-lap the dialogue, you know, which a lot of conventional television shows do. Um, Can I ask why that is? I mean, is it just, you just, you want to break the rule. I mean, I feel like The Handmaid's Tale is breaking all of the rules all of the time. So yeah. is what what's the mentality sort of around that? Well, I think it's sort of like, I kind of look at it as compartmentalizing. So like June in Gilead originally, like she was like a pri in a prison, she was a prisoner. So mm -hmm. nothing about transitions going from one scene to another should be smooth in the sense that you want to keep the audience on the edge, you know, and you kind of want to, like a, a really good example is the scene with Emily when she wakes up in the hospital. I, I mean, I've quoted this before, but it was really a great 
learning lesson for me on how to treat their emotions, like these women and what they're going through. So like Emily wakes up in the hospital and she realizes that something's been operated on. Yeah. And no longer has a clitoris. And she wakes up and she realizes what they've done to her. And Reed and I were like, how do we, how do we get through this? Because um, it was a long take and you know, Emily goes through the range of emotions. Like, first of all, she's shocked, then she's sad, then she's freaked out, then she's screaming, you know? So we had to go through all those emotions and it was like, Reed and I came up with, well, let's just jump cut through them. Put on a real cool punk song over it and jump cut through it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, really make it meaningful. Don't just do it for style. Like it's got to really hit the emotion beats. And, and so that's what we did. So I've used that as sort of Emily's go-to style for editing whenever she has something hugely traumatic come, you know, happen to her. Mm -hmm. um, so the same thing after she stabbed Aunt Lydia, I did the same thing, went through all yeah. the things with- I did. That's so um, interesting. Now, now I'm gonna have to go back and watch. Well, that's kind of, I hate saying, I have to go back and watch these two horrific scenes, but, um, but I, that's, that's a nice little tidbit to know. Yeah, it's just the, the, I mean, it really told us how to do it. You mm -hmm. know, the show really told us how to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of going into season three and season four, um, I mean, it only gets more difficult and it only become, I mean, you could have, heck, I, I mean, there could have been an argument that you could have ended it at season two. Like it could have been a completely different ending. Yeah. And then you, obviously the baby is passed off and- um, Dad. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so sort of like, what was there sort of a, not a reset because it's like, you already had known that you were expanding uh, the world after season one, but season three and season four, how do you how do you set up for something? I mean, something like that where it just it continues to it continues to go. And I mean, now we have the season five. Um, I mean, down the line. So, um, so how do you keep doing that? Well, I mean, luckily it's more a writing problem than an editing problem. As far as I don't know where the stories are going. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great, Bruce. Bruce said to me at the end of this season, I said, well, what's gonna happen next? And, and he's like, well, I'm not sure yet. I've got all these stories in play and I'll figure it out. I'll figure I've got, you know, Luke in Toronto and, and I don't wanna give spoilers away, but you know, all these characters that, that I can play with and, and take places. So it's, um, you know, you end a season and you hope, I mean, I kind of look at season three as a, a bit of a transitional season. Mm -hmm. You know, it um, it had to lay the the groundwork to be able to get to season four, and mm -hmm. it, it it did it in a satisfying way, I think. However, a lot of people said that it it took too long to do it. So, I mean, I don't know. I I think if you're a fan of the show, you're along for the ride, no matter what. But oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, the acting is so good. I mean, I could watch Lizzie Moss all day long. 
like she just is so incredible and so are the rest of the cast I you know mm -hmm. um and it was great to work with Lizzie as a director this season because she got some of the best performances out of the, our cast because they trust her you know mm -hmm. they know her so yeah I was I was going to ask very quickly I know I know you've talked about working with um uh, Elizabeth Moss um but so you you think it is the trust that it is with the actors um, uh, being able to be directed by someone that they are in a scene with, have been in a scene with, um, is that sort of the, the key to that success? I think so in this case, yeah, because I mean, we have new, new directors coming in every year Mm -hmm. um and our cast don't really know them very well and so like you, they have to do some pretty heavy stuff I mean mm -hmm. there's, you know rapes and murders and you know all sorts of things so it's pretty hard to get that emotional in front of a director who's asking you to do less or more or you know who may not know the show as well as I think our cast do mm -hmm. So when Elizabeth directed, you know, I think she got like an incredible performance out of OT. OT was just amazing in those episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I asked her about it and, and she really said it's because we're, we're friends and he knows me, he trusts me. And if I tell him, okay, you can go do this a bit like this or whatever, he, he really trusts her and, and will give it a go. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it was fascinating to see. Yeah, no, I, I would be interested to see, I mean, more actors and actresses get up into the, into the director's chair and, and, and be able to do that. But I mean, the fact that you have had Elizabeth Moss be able to do three episodes, that, I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so I wanna um, sort of close out our interview um, with a few, um, rapid fire questions for you, if you don't mind. And they can be um, short answers, long answers, whatever, um, uh, what, whatever you, whatever you want to say. Um, and my first question um, has to be, what character, if any, do you relate to the most on The Handmaid's Tale? character do I relate to the most um oh my gosh it's hard to relate to any of them really because we're none of us have gone through what they've gone through mm -hmm. um I would probably say Emily or June just because they're you know they're quiet but they mean business mm -hmm. um if you weren't an editor, what would you be doing? I would do something in the arts. I, I like photography and art and music, or I would do something with animals. <laughs> uh, what was the last show you watched? Mayor of Eastwood. Mayor of Easttown? Easttown, sorry, yeah. Mayor no, all good. Um, the last thing you read? Um, I'm reading uh, My Dark Vanessa. Mm -hmm. The last thing you listened to? Uh, Radiohead song. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie that made you fall in love 
uh, with movies or the TV show that made you fall in love with TV? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, I think the movie that made me fall in love with movies was probably The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Um, and the TV show, uh, my so-called life really had a huge impact on me. Mm. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, I, I haven't, no. Yeah, it's with Claire Danes when she's a teenager. Mm. I think Hulu's just putting it out, if I'm not mistaken. Somebody's putting it out, oh, reissuing it. Yeah, it's great. It's a great series. I'll put it on my list. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Oh, and one, one more now that I'm just thinking about it. If there was a song that you could have put in any of the seasons of The Handmaid's Tale up until this point, what would it be? Well, we got to put in a Radiohead song, so I was happy about that. That was Lizzie Moss's choice. Um, gosh, I really would love to use Bjork. Mm. Um, she's one of my faves, and we tried to get her in a couple times. One time she said we couldn't use the song because it was too personal for her. Um, and the second time it just never lived. So, mm. um, yeah, and there's a new band called Hildegard which I think is super cool. They just released their first album, so I'd love to get them in the show. Hmm. Um, yeah, there's lots of bands. Well, at least we have season five to possibly get yeah. guys in it. So. Yeah, exactly. 